and she just said, through Aisha's death, I saw love, I saw Jesus. Mm. Through the way that you held my sick child, through the way you took us to the hospital, through the way you carried her dead body, through the way you buried her in the ground and wept and mourned with me, I saw yeah. love. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Um, oh, there is a lot of heavy stuff going on right now and the whole point of Inspired, if you're new to us, is that we want to tell glory stories that uh, stir faith, that lift our spirits. Different friends of mine from all sorts of walks of life across the globe. And in that vein, I'm very excited today that we've got Nicola Neal with us. Hello, Nicola. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So I think we've got a lot of similarities. And I'm sure you yeah. struggle to define yourself. You know, what what are you? What do you do? And I went on your your website and it says you're an advocate for justice, a pioneer, a speaker, and an author. Uh, you're married to Simon, you've got two kids. You lived in Bath before, which is now where we live. Uh, you're, yeah. you're founder and CEO of Every Life uh, International Charity, working with the open poor, particularly in, in, in Uganda. Um, and so lots of similarities there with, with founding, starting up a, a, an organization working in Africa. And you've mm. written a few books, like I've written a, a number of books. And so there's there's loads of commonalities there. Uh, you, you probably don't even remember this, but the last time we saw each other in the flesh was at a New Wine Leaders Conference just the week, I think it was, before lockdown in, in 2020. And I was yeah, about to right. deliver a really sort of heavy meaty talk and I was somewhat breaking myself because it was it was very in your face <laughs> and I was on my knees and uh, you came over I mean you're on the new wine leadership team aren't you and you came over and and prayed and, and said go for it Simon don't hold back and that was a really affirming time because I knew I was about to say <laughs> I wasn't going to sort of hold back at all so that's anyway we've we've bumped into each other across each other's paths on a number of uh, speaking platforms and conferences over the last yeah. number of years. So anyway, but I don't know much about your background at all. So I'd love to dig into that before we get sort of more up to date. So, you know, tell us about your, your background. Where, where were you raised? So I was born in a town called High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. Mm, okay. um, yeah, into a Christian family. My parents were both Christians and my dad was a church leader. So I grew up in that kind of environment, which was a real gift. I got married very young. I was 20 when I got married. My husband was a student in the University of Bath, which is why I moved to Bath, because he still had some time to go on his degree. So we lived in Bath for many years, ended up on the leadership team of a church there in Bath. And kind of that's where we stayed until we moved ourselves to live in Uganda. That's a very potted quick yeah. history. That's mega fast. Let's go back in terms of, you know, how did you, you know, personally come to meet Jesus? Was it dramatic? Was it just uh, by osmosis through the family upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I remember very clearly, I was seven, and I we, we lived next door to a couple who led the house church that my parents um, were part of at the time. It's now grown to be something much bigger. But in, in those days, it was still meeting in, in their home. And I remember I'd been chatting with them. I was little. I spent a lot of time in their home. They were like, grandparents to me and I've been talking with with the guy about who Jesus is and I was so profoundly touched by the conversation I remember going home to my house next door walking into the kitchen when my mum was cooking dinner and saying mum I want to have a relationship with Jesus for myself 
And she stopped cooking and took me into the front room and and we sat together and she prayed for me and I prayed. And I think that's probably the first time that I remember kind of very tangibly and Mm -hmm. profoundly experiencing the presence of God. And that really began my whole faith journey. Was it um, a rocky season in teenage years or was it fairly silly? (laughs) It was bumpy, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, I was quite unwell, actually, for a couple of years. And so that didn't help. Um, Navigating your teens is always, I think, a challenge. But I've always been someone since, since that very early beginning who whatever is happening seems to always circle back into Jesus and 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 I and I did that I had a few times I needed to do quite a big circle back but I did do that and uh, I held on to my faith during my teens sometimes you know better than others but I I just always I was just always captivated by who Jesus was and I, and I could never really fully step away from that. I ended up doing an internship when I was 18 mm-hmm. after I'd finished my A-levels for our church and um, because I was just always very keen to know the more of who he is in my life. So, yeah, teenage years, a bit bumpy, but made it through. And then uh, in terms of chronology, I don't know what it was, but how? where did Bath fit in and your leadership there were there a number of steps leading up to that (laughs) yes a bit of a wild story but so I got married at 20 and I moved to Bath because my husband was studying in Bath when I got married that was the first time I left home and it was also the first time that I I moved towns cities churches everything so it's a massive moment for Mm me and, and settling and, and building a whole new life in Bath was was fairly daunting. But the church were wonderful with us and just sort of pulled us into the family there. And we, we were in the church for a few years. And it was in, it was in the year 2000. So I got married in 1995. And then in 2000, my husband, who was working as a full-time IT engineer at the time, and I was a full-time mum, we went through a three-month season of quite extraordinary encounters mm-hmm. um, and sort of prophetic visitations and angelic encounters and all sorts of very out there kind of things that ended up leading us into what was a very different life calling from where we were. Um, I, I mean, I could go into detail on that, but it's quite a story. I don't yeah, know how much you it. want to know. We love stories. Go for it. Uh, yeah, okay. So it, it all began really in the October of, of 1999 when my I was actually spending time with the Lord downstairs in my front room and my husband was upstairs having his quiet time in the bedroom. And the presence of the Lord just very suddenly and very tangibly filled the front room Mm. where I was. And I ended up lying face down on the floor. You know, those moments Mm -hmm. in the presence of God where you feel like you can't quite get low enough. And it was one of those, just this holy presence of the Lord. And as I was led face down, I heard the Lord speak to me very clearly and say, Nicola, will you die for me? And I'd had reoccurring 
dreams and nightmares through all of my childhood and teenage years of martyrdom. And so I was kind of freaked out, if I'm honest, by the question, thinking, well, what does what does this mean? And what do you mean die? And how are you asking if I will die for you? So hundreds of questions. But the Lord's response to me in that moment was I'm not asking you whether you will die physically, but I'm asking you whether you will die to every plan um, that you have made for your own life, because right. as beautiful as they are, it's not my plan for you. And, and I had a very clear plan for my life. I was a fairly quiet, nervous person. I just hmm. wanted to live out in the middle of nowhere, have my own little kind of mini farm, live off the land, have babies and hide from the world. That was my plan and right. I was doing quite well with it. Um, but he was like, will you, will you die to, to the plans that you have? And, and, and I actually feel like I really wrestled that out, if I'm honest, for about two hours on the floor with the Lord. But the bottom line for me in that moment was, I know that he's good and I know that he's trustworthy. So mm. in the end, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I surrender all of those things into your hands. And the presence of the Lord just lifted. And I ran upstairs to find my husband to tell him about it. And I walked into our bedroom and I couldn't see him. I'm like, babe, where are you? And he's like, <laughs> I'm over here. And he was on the floor the, on the other side of the bed. And I was like, you need to get up because I want to tell you, I've just had an encounter with the Lord. He's like, I can't get up. The presence of God is pinning wow. me to the floor. Oh so I was like, goodness. well, what's happened? It was in the days of CD Walkman things, you yeah. know, the little personal <laughs> CD things. And he's like, oh, I went to have some time with Jesus. And I think the CD player's broken because I couldn't get any track to play apart from track four. But as it began to play, the song was called I Surrender All. Mm. And the presence of God hit me and the Lord said, will you, will you surrender every plan that you have for your life and yield wow. to mine? It was extraordinary. Yes. And so we, I got down on the floor next to him and we just wept. And that began, and we actually, interestingly, we tried the CD player afterwards and it played every other track. Right. It was totally fine. Yeah, so yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. But that began a three-month period of um, dreams, visions, encounters that really, uh, it's no exaggeration to say it completely turned our world upside down and inside out and mm. left our hearts very, very broken for the poor, and uh, particularly for the continent of Africa. And so, yeah, and so began a journey of kind of exiting. Someone was in a very well-paid job, as I said, in IT, and I was a full-time mum, kind of exiting that life and that lifestyle and, and pursuing a completely different one. So is that when you founded Every, Every Life? No. So on the back of, of those three months, we felt the Lord issue us with three very clear challenges. Mm -hmm. The first one was that Simon was to quit his job and uh, we would begin to live by faith for want of a better expression um, mm -hmm. and trust the Lord for all of our income and free our time to begin to serve the poor. The second was we were actually, we had our son, our birth son at that time, and we were trying to get pregnant and have a second baby and felt the Lord say, I don't want you to have any more natural children, but I want you to adopt a child as a prophetic sign of what it is I'm going to do amongst a whole generation mm -hmm. of taking them out of a place of kind of brokenness and orphanhood and hope, you know, darkness and all of those things into family, into life, into hope, into future. 
And the third, we knew the Lord was saying, I want you to sow your lives into the continent of Africa. And so we began to explore those things straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one we pretty much did quite quickly. Simon just quit his job and we began to trust the Lord. That was scary. Mm-hmm. It was very scary when yeah. you've got, you know, a house, a mortgage, a car loan, nursery fees and all those things. But we just we just did it. Um, we began the adoption process. We now have our daughter. She is she is just she's epic mm. in every way. She's been the biggest blessing to our family. And then we began to push the door with regards to Africa. And interestingly, the first two things happened relatively quickly. And we ended up going to speak to our church leaders in Bath and sharing the journey with them. They took us on staff at the church as children's pastors initially and Mm -hmm. outreach workers into the local estates. Um, We began the adoption journey, as I said, but Africa never seemed to move. We couldn't, every door we pushed seemed to be very firmly shut. And we we pushed the door for 10 years and in the end just decided, well, maybe, you know, we prophesy in part, right? So maybe we've heard wrong. And so we just, we ended up just laying that one down. Um, Mm. Yeah. And then actually it was eight, it was nine years because then suddenly the Lord broke into our world again. So yeah, we went from being children's pastors to being on the senior leadership of the church. And we did that for eight years. And then, as I said, we went through another three months of visions and encounters Mm -hmm. and prophetic experiences that actually led to the door to Africa flinging wide open. And that's when every life began. Right. Come on. So how did it fling open? (laughs) Uh, Well, so we, September, 2008, it was interesting, actually. I was I was reflecting on this the other day. I was speaking at a huge conference here in Buckinghamshire. It's a big, big tent, about a two thousand seater. And the whole time I was speaking, you know what it's like, Simon. Sometimes you can see faces that you know in the crowd. Mm. And I could see this girl, and I was thinking, I'm sure I know who she is. You know, at the end of the meeting, she came up, and we realised that we had known each other when we were really, really young, okay. but hadn't seen each other for about thirty years. So we're catching up and it was all very wonderful. And then in the middle of a conversation, she just stopped dead and she went, what are you doing in the UK? Wow. I was like, well, what do you mean? I've just been telling you what I'm doing. She said, you're supposed to be in Africa. No, you're supposed to be in Uganda. And then she, she kind of, her hand flop over her mouth and she went, why did I just say that? <laughs> wow. And I'm like, I've literally no idea. But that was the beginning from the September through to December of 2008 of having another three months of receiving prophetic words from all over the world, literally, and visions and dreams and strange encounters at, you know, places where I was speaking and teaching and, and everything really speaking or calling out Africa mm to us and so then in December 2008 we went to sit and have a conversation with the guy who was the senior leader of the church that we were part of and on the leadership team for shared with him at this point we'd never been to Africa had no idea what Africa was like not got a clue just said to him this is what the Lord has been saying I mean it was it was such a catalogue of stuff would you just send us for two weeks? And um, I just feel like my feet need to touch African soil and maybe the Lord's going to speak and we just need to go for a couple of weeks. And he sat very quietly listening as he used to do and then just said, you know what, you'll learn nothing in two weeks. This is absolutely the Lord. And I think you should just move there. Yeah, and that wasn't that really wasn't on our agenda at all. You know, I've got two small children by this point, mortgage, a house, car, nice job, 
fantastic church family. Mm. And he was actually leaving for Uganda that afternoon to go out and do a couple of things. And he said, I'm going to Heathrow in one hour. So that's how long you've got to make your decision. And if you're up for just moving there tomorrow, when I get into Kampala, I'll get you a house. Wow. Uh, we were just absolutely gobsmacked. I, did, I just didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. So we went off for a coffee, sat in Starbucks. And my husband is a physicist by training and a, a very, very processed person. Mm-hmm. Um, takes a long time to make decisions about anything, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is going to be all right because there's just absolutely no way Simon's going to say yes to something like this. And he sat in silence or we sat in silence for half an hour. And then he just looked to me and said, baby, this is Jesus. Mm. We need to move. And so we moved eight weeks later. Wow. And um, yeah, that was, that was quite crazy. And now when I look back on it, I think, what, what were we thinking? Mm. But yeah, we moved on the uh, 28th of February and uh, started a whole, a whole new life. And that's how every life was born. Yeah, and uh, you, you, there was some first sort of slum experience that really def- marked you, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, when we when we arrived there, as I said, we we had no idea what Africa was like, let alone Uganda. I mean, Africa is huge and very diverse, even in itself, right? So we had we had no clue. And the first three months, really, we we knew no one. We had nobody to show us how to do anything. And we'd chosen to live the other side of the city to most of the expat community. And so we were just working out how do you live life in an African village? How do you, I don't know, how do you buy food from the local market? How do you do anything? Mm. Got our kids settled into school and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then began to just spend time in our local community. I mean, we had no team, we had no resources, we had no money, we had no vision because before we moved, every time you would pray and say, what are you sending us to Africa to do? The Lord would just say, when you get there, I'll show you. So we literally had no idea what we were there to Mm. do. And then one day I was walking through our village and I met this small child. I was with a guy that I'd met who was from the village, amazing Ugandan man, called Amos and I was talking with him and we met this small child who was really sick and I heard her story and we prayed you know as you do and and we went on our way but I was so brokenhearted by her story I was very teary and he looked at me and oh Nicola you're a nightmare if you're crying over that I don't know what you'd do if you walked into a slum and to be honest Simon I was so naive I just said there's no slums in Uganda and he looked at me with mouth open he's like there's one literally a five minute walk from your front door so I said to him, then I want to go. And he said, you don't understand. It's, it's way too dangerous for you to go in there. It's too risky. It's not safe. And I said to him, no, I want to go. And he said, you're not listening to what I'm saying. And I said to him, no, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Hmm. I want to go in. He said, well, as long as you're aware of the risks, I'll take you tomorrow. And so my husband and I went into that first slum community the next morning. And, and really, I just... I wasn't prepared for what I saw. Mm. And I think it's one thing, isn't it, to see, you know, the Oxfam TV advert or Save the Children, whatever it is, and see poverty through a television screen. It's a whole other thing when you're looking at it, you know, you're eyeballing someone in the eye and and you're right there in the midst of it and you're seeing it firsthand. And it it literally felt like I was winded. I, I just got home and I just broke and I heard the Lord very clearly saying, and this is where I've called you to love and serve. Right. And so that's what we did. Yeah, and that's where we began our ministry in that tiny little slum in the corner of Kampala. 
I mean, what does it look like? Because there's a lot of criticism now, isn't there, of white saviorism and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what did it look like for you? Well, I mean, it it looked like time. Mm. To be honest, we didn't have anything to take in with us. As I said, we we didn't have any money. We barely had enough to to support ourselves, just to you know live a basic life there. We didn't have a team, so I was would just go in with Amos and a couple of other. Uh, people from the village who we'd got to know really well and we would just sit and spend time and get to know the people who lived in those places. Um, As you can imagine, slum communities are um, extremely cautious Mm -hmm. in allowing anyone uh, to, to really be in their community or sharing their life or their story with anyone. And so we spent literally the first six months just going in every day, being with the people, helping out, doing whatever we could do, you know, cleaning up babies and helping prepare food and digging ground and just just trying to become one with the community and learn mm-hmm. because we didn't know anything. I don't know anything about slum culture. So we just wanted to learn about what is life like here? How does how do things work? Um, and And it really, those first six months were so precious because it was a journey of discovery, learning that although they are, yes, definitely very um, financially poor places, there is a huge amount of richness Mm. and there was a huge amount of beauty to be found. And and it began to impact our life. I would say the slum changed our lives way before we were able to help bring about any change in theirs. Um, and, and that was a humbling experience and a very precious one. And then somebody somebody in the UK ran a marathon and um, raised £150 and sent it to us. And we were like, wow, this is so exciting. What could we do with this money? And so the Lord began to talk to us about a little tiny project that we could do that would bless that community. And so in partnership with the community leaders, we began a small shoe project which took off actually quite quickly. And that and that's how our work began. But yeah, I think we, we learned a lot about the value of relationship mm-hmm. in those first six months and the importance of viewing the people that you are to love and serve as people, as friends, as equals, not as a project. Yeah. And that kind of really informed how we've done everything moving forwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of my mantras, key mantras is, Everything is relationship, and Absolutely. we've been able to have such beautiful fruit in Burundi through yeah. And and you can't you can't fast track relationship. It comes from time spent and uh, yeah. getting your hands dirty. So yeah, what what are the key values that that, that uh, you sort of can now articulate more clearly? But maybe back then you just either the Lord just blessed you to incarnate. But what you know, how, how does it look for you? Your sort of spiritual DNA being worked out there. I would say, I mean, our our key foundational values are love and relationship. We have other values that sit around that, but but that's our foundation stone because you're absolutely right. Everything flows out of relationship, and if if you if you don't operate within a relational mindset, then it all very quickly goes a little bit wrong. I think. So we we still today we're 13 years in we still spend every day all day our staff teams do out in the slum communities and a lot of time is spent just being with the people Mm -hmm. building relationship building trust honoring people's stories taking the time to listen and hear and then 
you know, with the people, discovering what it is that they want to see happen in their community, what they they perceive their needs to be, and mm-hmm. working out how to help them um, meet their needs themselves. So I think really love and relationship, that's our founding values. I, I pray that they will always be our core values and mm. the way that we operate and the way that we do everything, yeah. the lens that we do everything through. Hey folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's, it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast Mama Aisha, tell her, tell us her story. Yeah, Mama Aisha is one of my probably one of my most favourite stories. We have a saying in our ministry that love has the power to transform everything that it touches, mm-hmm. and 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 I totally stand by that. I believe it's absolutely true, and 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 we have had the privilege of seeing love himself come and do many, many things over the years. As I know that you have, Simon, you know, we've seen the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and multiplication of food. And we've seen the dead come back to life. You know, we've seen these things happen. But I always say that Olivia's story, which is about her daughter Aisha, is probably the most profound thing or the most impacting thing for me mm-hmm. that I've ever seen love accomplish. So Mama Aisha, her name is Olivia, um, we met her when she was living in a particular slum community and a beautiful Muslim family, really loved them. They were very precious, but they had this little girl Aisha who was suffering from malnutrition she was on one of our feeding programs, but struggling to get her better. And then one day we had a phone call to say that Aisha had taken a bad turn. So some of our staff jumped in a car, went and picked them up and took them to the hospital. And the doctors were amazing and were doing everything they could to save Aisha's life. But Olivia had given birth to a second child just like a couple of days before that she'd left at home in the slum community with a neighbour. So the doctor had sort of encouraged her to go home that night and be with her baby mm-hmm. and that they would, you know, they would care for Aisha. And that's what she wanted to do. So some of our staff stayed at the hospital overnight with Aisha and the rest of them took her home. And then, of course, the next morning we went to pick her up and take her back to the hospital to, um, to visit Aisha. And as we were driving to the hospital, the telephone rang and it was one of our staff team members to tell us that Aisha had died. And Mm. um, it it was very devastating, as as you can imagine. And having to break that news to a parent is just just the worst thing. So she, of course, is is distraught. We get to the hospital and, and so we ended up, you know, picking up her little body and carrying her and her mummy back to the community and then we sat with them and you know sat 
and and helped initiate that morning burial process and and I mean literally helped dig the hole and place that little baby in the ground and it was brutal mm. and it was devastating and disappointing and so painful and all of those things Olivia's husband couldn't really cope with the with the pain and the trauma and he left he left her disappeared she couldn't afford to pay the rent on her little slum house so she was thrown out and she was living on the street that all happened within a couple of weeks of the burial. Um, and then one day, it was very hard to keep track of someone who's living on the street in the slum. We did our best. But one day anyway, she had a number and she phoned the team to say she wanted to speak to someone. So a staff team member went and she said, I need you to help me. Last night I had a dream and in my dream, Aisha appeared in front of me. And said, Mummy, do not mourn, receive comfort. I'm with Jesus. You need to follow him. And so she said to my staff team member, do you know this Jesus? Can you introduce me to him? Wow. So the staff team member said, absolutely. And led her to faith right there in the, you know, the, the alleyway of the slum. A few days later, her husband suddenly out of nowhere returns home, tracks her down and says to her, we need to talk. A few nights ago, I had a dream. And in my dream, I saw Aisha say night. And she said to me, Daddy, do not mourn, receive comfort. I am with Jesus. You need to decide to follow him. It was just extraordinary. Uh, goosebumps. Yeah. So she, he said to his wife, we need to find someone to introduce us to this Jesus. And, and she said to him, I can do that. And so she led her husband to the Lord Correct. and they had a beautiful, it was amazing, a beautiful reconciliation moment. Mm. And um, and they're still together and, and they're doing well and they're strong and they've become, they, they're, they're leaders on our Champions program and mm. they are just, you know when you meet people who literally radiate Jesus and yeah. you feel like when you're near them, you're, you're nearer to him, you know, they're those sorts of people that absolutely, Wonderful. they're leaders in the community, they are, they are hope bringers in the community, they're nutrition champions fighting for other, you know, families to, to not have to go through the same experience that they are they help run our feeding programs but they are they are extraordinary and for me we've seen as i said all those other miracles but really the fact that love um can redeem everything mm. even death itself yeah. is so beautiful to me and, and i sat with her a little while ago i'm writing a new book and i want to put a story in it and i had a question and i was like Mummy, can i ask you my question I mean, it was burning in my heart and i was like you know if 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 when we prayed for Aisha to be healed, she had been healed and then you decided to follow Jesus, like I would get that, I would understand that. Or if when we prayed for her to be raised from the dead, she was raised from the dead and then you had decided to follow Jesus, like I would understand that, that would make sense to me, but she wasn't healed, she wasn't raised, she's dead and in the ground, yet still you decide to follow him. Why? That was my question, like, why? What was it? And Simon, she she made this statement that, that has so profoundly shaped me mm. moving forwards and our ministry as a person. And she just said, through Aisha's death, I saw love. I saw Jesus. Mm. It was so, it was so extraordinary. And I just went, how? And she said, through you, not me personally, but through our team, mm. through the way that you held my sick child, through the way you took us to the hospital, through the way you carried her dead body, through the way you buried her in the ground and wept and mourned with me, I saw love, yeah. I saw Jesus. And I, and I thought that was extraordinary. And for me, 
even to this day, that is the most amazing thing I think that I've seen love do yeah. is, is redeem yeah. death itself. It's mm. beautiful. Truly beautiful. Mm. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Now, as a, as a ministry, you talk a lot about gold. In fact, one of your second book, I think, is gold, being, about yeah. gold being found on the inside of every life, everyone. So can you tell us more yeah. about that? Yeah, our, our kind of saying is that we believe that every life, hence our name, is born with God-given potential on the inside of them, you know, gifts and skills and calling and beauty. It's just that sometimes that potential, which we call gold, just it gets buried under the dirt of life and mm. poverty and circumstance and pain. And so we simply see it as our job to walk life alongside people and help them mine for the gold that is in their own life and see that gold brought to the surface and see them begin to shine and then help them work out how they then do that also, not just for themselves, but for their family and for their whole communities with, with the, the vision of seeing whole communities um, walking in, in their true identity and um, fulfilling their true calling. So, yeah, but we use the term mining for gold a lot of the time. And, and I think we challenge ourselves on a regular basis and, and actually is, is a bit of a, um, what's the word, a, a lens by which we try to do everything through, which is I'm not better than this person. Yeah. They're not better than me. We're all equal mm. and we're all formed in the image of God and we're all created with so much, so much on the inside of us. Yeah. But some of us have had more opportunity to see that gold released. So mm. how do we create opportunity um, for everyone? Yeah, God grant us eyes to really see because man looks at the outward appearance but god looks at the heart and absolutely appearances can be very deceptive can't they mm. it really can. now um i was this morning i was, I was looking at saddam's story how, how do you see the work of uh, every life multiplying saddam is is really to me i think a prophetic demonstration of how we are called to multiply what we do. Um, I'll tell you a story very quickly. We met Saddam when he was 10 years old. Uh, he was in, he was dying of end stage AIDS and heart failure and was really, uh, it was just horrific. He was in extraordinary pain. He was out of his mind a lot of the time and we were walking his kind of end of life journey with him and his family whilst believing for healing. And one day our team went and, um, <clears throat> were there when Saddam was particularly distressed and he was he was in so much pain. He was trying to get his skin off of his, off of his body like he was trying to escape the pain and he was mm. smashing his head against a brick wall and clawing his skin off. And his mama was really distressed and, and we just said, we, we, she said, help me, help me. And, and he'd been sent home from the hospital to die and, and none of the medication was, was managing the pain. And I, so I remember us saying to her, we, we, there's, there's just nothing in the practical in a sense that we can do, but we can pray. And so we got down on our knees and invited her to join us just in the middle of the slum and, and just began to ask the Lord for his rescue for Saddam. And, and he sort of, in a moment of sort of consciousness, really came over and was like, what are you doing? And we said, we're asking Jesus to heal you. And he, he said, I want to pray. And I remember us saying to him, all you have to do, Saddam, is say the name Jesus. And this little tiny 10-year-old, very, very sick boy, just with everything that he can, mutters the name mm. Jesus Yesu, as it is in Luganda. Mm. And, and the moment that he did, his whole entire body 
was just filled with this extraordinary peace and the presence of the Lord and and he was instantly healed. And uh, we began to walk a journey over the next 10 years with him of seeing him go from strength to strength to strength to strength. He, you know, he got him into, we got him on a feeding program again. He began to rebuild his physical strength and put weight on and we ended up getting him back into school. And, and so his story of transformation goes on. But to cut a long story short, here we are 10 years later and Saddam has just been through what we call our apprenticeship program which is our leadership development program for slum dwellers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a leadership development program that is is rooted in kingdom values and um, obviously the Bible. But we've had to work out a way in which to raise leaders and train them in theology and all other areas of leadership when they can't read and write, which is a very interesting challenge. I'm sure you've had this, Simon, Mm. of your ministry, you know, how you how you don't let those things become a blockage to someone fulfilling their potential. And anyway, that's our apprenticeship program. And Saddam's just finished that. And he now oversees, well, he's actually planted two churches for us. And he now oversees the churches in his whole area, his, his slum community. Our churches are house churches. They're very messy. They're very small. They're very organic, but they, they're full of very complex people exiting lives of addiction and prostitution and all all sorts of other issues that you find where there is poverty but they are they're beautiful and messy and they're beautiful and Saddam now helps oversee those and helps run some of our projects in the community Mm. and to me he really is a prophetic demonstration of what I believe we're called to do which is I guess it's that scripture, isn't it? He you know, takes the poor from the from the ashes, from the dust heap, and he raises them up and he seats them with kings and princes. And, yes. and, and we see our job very much as enabling the poor and the uneducated, those that culture overlooks, exploits and abuses, as it says so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 1, and seeing those people um, raised up to run our mission and our ministry. And so we're constantly working very hard at doing that and trying to do ourselves out of a job. Yeah. And the best people to change their community are the people who live in the community. Absolutely. And the best people to minister to those who are exiting addiction are those who've exited addiction. And so, you know, we're, we're not the best people to do those jobs. We, we're, we're really not. There are, there are people like the Saddams or the Olivias of this world who are much better placed to do that in, in much better way than we ever could and so the multiplication of our ministry as we move forward we really want to see that happen through raising up the poor So you've seen, uh, I know, stack loads of people, countless men and women coming to faith in Jesus. How have you handled it? What does it look like um, to do these house churches? Yeah, I mean, it was a surprise to us, really, if I'm completely honest, how many people we saw coming to faith so quickly. And mm-hmm. that, that hasn't changed over the years. And right now we're seeing more than ever. Um, we tried to connect people into the local church that was already established. But slum culture is very different mm-hmm. to the rest of the city culture that they're, they're in. It's a very unique environment and slum dwellers are not always accepted accepted or acceptable uh, outside of their own kind of little microcosm in it. And so we, when we tried to connect people in with the local church, it, it just didn't work. It, and it, I mean, it really didn't work. 
So we we ended up going, well, I think we're going to have to plant our own within the slum itself and raise up locals to lead them. And so that's what we've been doing. So all of our churches are very small. They're up to about 20 people because they have to fit in a slum house, which is Mm -hmm. usually a one room house, like two meters by three meters. Right. So there's not a lot of room. Um, And they are very, as I said before, they're, they're very messy. They're very honest. They are dealing with very gritty day-to-day issues, but they're beautiful. And, um, you know, they, 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 we, don't, we don't have any money to fund our churches. They don't need it. Mm. They, they are led by the community themselves. Everyone brings, someone brings some tea and someone brings a chapati. We don't have a worship leader. Everyone's a worship leader. Everyone can sing. Yeah. We, um, we have two people who oversee each one of them and it's their responsibility to open up the Bible and talk around, you know, passages of scripture. We tend to stick to the gospels and teaching about the life and the, the life of Jesus really and the teachings of Jesus. And we, we teach very much in story form mm-hmm. because that's easily un, more easily understandable and, and memorable. Yeah. Um, and so we have a lot of discussion around the life and teachings of Jesus, uh, worship, as I said, but in a very different way to how we would experience that here. And the, and they don't always meet on a Sunday. They usually meet whenever works with the people who are in them. Hmm. And then we do gather all of our house churches in in communities together on a Sunday morning, like once every month for a big celebration. And that's when they all come together and... Um, yeah, we just share testimonies really and have a good old sing and a dance and it gets really wild yeah. and crazy as you can imagine. Beautiful, absolutely it love sounds it. fabulously messy and, 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 and authentic and real. I, when I preach, I often share some, but I hold back on plenty of stories about, you know, witchcraft and stuff like that. I know, yeah. I know you've had some serious encounters. Do you, do you want to share yeah. some that went completely fry our, our audience brain? <laughs> That will or that won't fry them. Well, well, you too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of interaction with uh, witch doctors, which is obviously a huge part of culture there. It's a huge part of slum culture, mm. kind of traditional herbal medicine, which switch, you know flips over the line into witchcraft practice. Uh, it, there's, there's big issues with it in, in Uganda um, or in lots of parts of Africa, as you know. Yeah, I could tell you one story, which is probably my favourite story, is when we met a young guy once in the slum. One night, a team of guys had gone in of our team to hang out in the bar and with some, a bar, you know, it's, it's a wooden shack, but it's a bar. And they met this young guy who asked them to pray for him. He's like, I'm not a Christian, but would you pray for me? I, um, I've i been struggling at night time. At, at night, it's like these these spiritual beings enter my home and they tell me to do really bad things to myself and to other people. And and I'm terrified of the night. I haven't slept properly for months and I'm fearful for my own life and the life of those around me. And so would you pray to your Jesus? So our team said, sure, we'll do that. And so they did and kind of went about their way. They came back a couple of weeks later and this guy comes running up to them like, you know, you'll never guess what happened to me kind of thing. And they were Mm. like, I think we probably 
can guess. And he's like, ever since you prayed, I've not had one demonic visitation. I've been sleeping well. My home is full of peace. I'm full of peace. I, 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 I want to know this Jesus that you prayed to. So they led him into faith. And then he said, I have an auntie uh, who's suffering with a similar kind of thing. She doesn't live in a slum. She lives in this particular district outside of the slum. Would, would you come and pray for her? So they said, sure we can do that we'll come on Saturday so they came back to the office and were telling me this story and I'm like I, li- I don't like to miss out on the action Simon I'm yeah. like I want to I wanna go so can I come along so I kind of crashed the party and we picked this guy up from the slum on that Saturday and drove we ended up driving actually a long long way that I didn't realize that the town and the district had the same name so we had presumed we were going like 30 minutes away to the town but actually it was in the district so we drove two to three hours out into the deep deep bush and at one point I was getting quite nervous thinking we know nothing about this young guy except that he had um, recently come out of prison for something quite significant. And here we are, you know, heading off into the middle of nowhere with him to meet this person who we don't know. Anyway, we finally got into this kind of really overgrown area. And he said, you've got to park the car here because we have to walk the rest of the way because you can't get, you can only get to it on foot. So as we're traipsing through what felt like the jungle, <laughs> I'm like, to, to, to this young guy, could you just tell me a little bit bit more about your auntie and that's when he goes on to say oh yeah she's the queen ranking witch doctor for the whole of this district people who come from hundreds of miles to consult the dead through her she was dedicated to the demonic at birth and she's been used in ritual sacrifice all of her life and I was just like oh (laughs) and he was like is that okay and I'm like you know my mouth's going sure but inside I'm like man I feel so far outside of my own spiritual depth you know I, I literally don't know what to do and so I'm praying walking walking through the kind of overgrowth just with some kind of image of I don't know Elijah and the prophets of Baal or something you know some massive showdown that's about to take place we suddenly get to the village and uh, there's the little clearing and all the little mud roundhouses, you know, beautiful little tiny little village. And we stop and he said, we're here. And then I see this old lady, old Ugandan lady with white hair, which is quite unusual mm. to see women of that age. And, and, and she screamed as she saw us and came running over and threw herself at our feet and is just talking and shouting and talking and shouting. And I turned to the young guy and I'm like, who is this? And he said, that's my auntie. And I said, "Um, what is it that she's saying? And he said, she's saying, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. Yeah. So I said to him and to my team, like, this is too easy. Do you know what I mean? Like this, this is too easy. So we need to stand her up. So we stood her up and I had a couple of um, apprentices, interns with me. And I said, now give her the gospel because it's always much more fun to see them do it than do it yourself, right? So I like, give her the gospel. Like, make sure you tell her the true gospel because this could cost her everything. Mm. Like, I'm well aware of what this could mean for her life. They give her the gospel and, and, and she's like, give me Jesus. So we got down on our knees with her and we prayed with her and she had a powerful encounter with the presence of God. And, and then everyone said to me, well, what do we do now? And I'm like, I literally got... Oh, no idea. So I said, well, I wonder if it would be good to burn her shrine and all of her witchcraft paraphernalia. So we suggested this to her, which she thought was an amazing idea. She jumps up, you know, and and runs off and piles it all high. Wow, that's her livelihood. Yeah, exactly. But she she piles it all high and, and, and she strikes the match and she sets it all on fire. 
And I remember just standing there watching this huge pile of stuff just burning. And I'm just like, wow, like I really wasn't expecting this. And then they said, what should we do now? And I said, I think we should worship. And actually, I'm really thankful. I I had my iPhone in my pocket and I pulled it out because I thought I'm going to capture this because I'm not sure I'm even going to believe this story myself in, you know, in a few days' time. So I'm going to get some evidence. <laughs> so I've got a picture of us dancing and worshipping together. And then the whole village came out, as you would imagine they would, because it was quite a spectacle and, and wanted to see what we were doing. And so we gave the gospel to the whole village and everyone, bar one person, gave their life to Jesus, men, women and children. I then thought maybe it would be a good idea to pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit and baptise me in water because I'm not sure I'm ever going to find this place again. Mm -hmm. Um, They had one jerry can of water, so we took a little bit and we baptised everybody and we prayed for them all to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and they were. And again, I've got some, some video footage of that because it was so incredibly powerful. And then we left. And really, from walking in to leaving was, what, two hours? Mm-hmm. And it was it was extraordinary. And I remember driving home in the car thinking, that's the kind of thing that I've only read about in books, you know. Yeah. I, I never imagined, Simon, that I would ever get to be part of that. But the most amazing thing about it for me, really, was I did go back a month later because I wanted to see how she was doing. And uh, I sat with her. And I said to her, you know, many preachers have come over the years to your village and tried to convert you, you know. What was it that day that made you decide in an, in an instant that you wanted to follow Jesus? And, and like Mama Aisha, she gave me just this incredible one-liner where she just said, and I, and I quickly got my phone out and wrote it down. She said, the moment you walked into my village... I saw that the power that was in you was far greater than the power that was in me. And I knew I had to bow the knee to it. Amen. (laughs) And I was like, wow, only Jesus. Do you mean only Jesus? Only Jesus. So, um, yeah, that's one. I mean, we have many stories like that where we've had incredible interactions with witch doctors and seeing God come. But I think that's my standout story. That's probably my favourite. Yeah, well, that's a pretty good one. Um, you know, I, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop. We've kind of run out of time. And But the, you've written two books in which people can read those stories, can't they? They um, can, yeah. Go on, tell us about them. Yeah, the first book's called Journey Into Love, and that's really um, the journey of me going out to Africa and what we first began to discover about love and why that became our value, really. And and there's lots of stories in there about what we've seen the Lord do um, through simple acts of love. And then gold is really, uh, as we were saying before, about how we've discovered the beautiful potential in the lives of the poor and, and again, what we've learned ourselves and what we've been challenged about in how we live and how we love and um, and how we see people. And so there's, again, lots of stories in there. So mm. yeah, journey into love and gold. Great. And and I'm, I mean, there's lots of questions going through my mind along the lines of, which we actually haven't got time, so I hesitate to even bring them up, but like you, you are <laughs> not actually a typical recommended model of how to go about mission, are you, in terms of you, <laughs> no. went, you went out with no training. It was just, it was just God's essentially sovereign hand on your particular yes. journey in life isn't it i mean so i'm, I'm always saying to people because I, I i haven't been out there my 
all my most disillusioning experiences on the mission field were from other missionaries that had come out unprepared yeah. and, uh, and, and not value true. training and made some spectacular mistakes in their yeah. often arrogance or just ignorance. And we want to minimize yeah. those mistakes. So I know you wouldn't Absolutely. say don't go out of training. You would value training, wouldn't you? But was oh, that- 100%. Yeah. And, and and following from that also, just, just last question on sort of reflection of what happening with your own mission model and the new thing that you sense Jesus is doing. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I th- there's there's so much I can say about that, but but very briefly, I think that I think the Lord is wanting to turn the tide on how we view mission overseas, mm-hmm. and I actually think that there's something that needs to dramatically shift in our thinking. Say here in in the UK in the UK Church of how we view um, missional activity, and and if we could if we could humble ourselves to get to the point where we could understand and position ourselves from the place of knowing that we will learn far more than we will teach when we go out to places like Uganda as an example and we go in with an openness to to learn more than we know that we have to give away we might begin to discover the riches that are found amongst the poor um, and and things true simple kingdom truths that actually could transform our life and the life of the church here and 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 make us better people but but i i think there has to be a profound shift in in our attitude and our understanding and our models as well but that's a whole other conversation yes um i mean it really is but i think i think the lord is very serious about turning that upside down and on its head and i think that's potentially a very uncomfortable process for the uk church to to walk but i think it's an absolutely vital one but i think you know some of the values that i have discovered whilst living and serving in Uganda, the values of extended family and, and community. It takes a village to raise mm. a child. You know, these things that actually we used to have very much in the DNA of our nation, but we've lost over the years. If we could rediscover some of those things and allow the poor to be our teacher, we would be better off for it. So I think that there is a huge shift coming. And I think there is a very direct challenge from heaven being given to us. Um, we just need to be brave and bold enough to hear it, to repent of where we've got it wrong and to shift our position in it. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it is a massive conversation. Yes, yes. another podcast, another few podcasts. Yeah. Listen, mate, we're going to have to call it a day there. Um, guys, uh, I hope you're inspired. I am totally inspired. And if you want to be in touch with, just go to nicolaneal.uk and uh, there'll be all the details there on every life. We'll, we'll put all that stuff in the blurb. Nicola, thank you so much. It's been great to have you. Thanks for having me. Simon. Brilliant. Well, listen, folks, I presume you've been inspired. Listen, I, I say it regularly, but please just do it and then I won't have to say it. Uh, give, us a, give us a top quality review <laughs> on Spotify or iTunes uh, and, and recommend this and get other people to, to follow it because it, it, it does what it says on the tin. We want to be stirred in our faith. We want to, our faith levels to to rise up. I mean, you hear those stories of flipping out, Lord, you can do that. Do that here. Do that where I am. And so, yes, if you want to be in touch with me, it's, it's through simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms. But uh, you guys have a great week. We'll see you next time with another fantastic guest. In the meantime, God bless you and toodaloo.